Okay, well, today we embark on a journey through the vision or two or three of Ezekiel. And uh, this is, you've got all the other visions that are, you know, pretty interesting and have, you know, have a lot to them. And then you have Ezekiel that is so much to it, so over the top, you could spend months in Ezekiel if you really wanted to. I'm going to try to try to not have to do that, but. It's, uh, there's a lot here in Ezekiel and the visions that he has. So we're just going to start off in Ezekiel chapter 1 this morning. And uh, I'll start off reading. I may ask some of y'all to read too. But, uh, and, and you can see we've got so much to go through. I've got two whole books of it here. <laughs> just kidding. But we're just going to look at some pictures of these. Um, so starting in verse 1, it says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chibar Canal, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth month, on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chibar or Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon them. All right, so. There's some very clear identifying geographical information here in this, this first few verses of where this took place, this vision, where Ezekiel saw the things he saw. And it was among the exiles. They had been exiled to places, you know, in Babylon. And Kibar was one of the main places that some of the exiles were. And they were by this river or canal could be called either one, uh, this Kibar, and that if you look on a map, it goes from uh, down around the Euphrates and Tigris area, and it goes up and eventually washes up into the, way up here into the uh, Black Sea area and things like that. So he's in this, he's beside this river in this place um, among, with the exiles. And as you can imagine, they probably, uh, you know, they're living in exile. And you know how that goes. It's a, it's a time when, uh, it's a time when, you know, there's probably a lot of people questioning uh, why did this happen? How do we get to this place? How do we end up in these circumstances? Has God abandoned us? Uh, are we here for forever? Is this the end? Is this the final place for, for us, you know? There were probably a lot of questions in their minds, and this is the time and place that God chooses to speak to the prophet Ezekiel in a very amazing way. Probably the most, uh, certainly the most uh, detailed written uh, vision that we have in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway. So uh, it says in verse 4, as I looked... Behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures 
uh, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Uh, let's stop there. I'll get into that in a minute. So here in verse 4, we already have uh, some of the elements that we've seen in the other visions. We saw this in Isaiah, and we saw it in the earlier ones that we talked about. We have, uh, we have fire flashing here. Uh, we have a great cloud. Again, we've seen that in, in almost every vision we've had, a great cloud. We've had the element of fire in these visions. As we see that over and over. And in this case, uh, he describes this cloud with uh, brightness around it, fire flashing forth out of it in the midst of the fire uh, as if it were gleaming metal. So it's a very descriptive uh, vision. It's very, it's, for this part anyway, it's not too hard to, you know, there's a lot of imagination you can use here to really visualize what this might have looked like. And that's one reason I think that this, these visions of Ezekiel really, really speak to us is because uh, you can really imagine this. You know, they didn't have, obviously, uh, camcorders and photography back then. So, you know, but they, they could describe what they saw. And they were really good at doing so descriptively because that was the way that they remembered, you know, details was through description. That was the only way they had to do it. So this is the description of what he saw, and he's describing as best he can. As we see, I think I mentioned this last week, as we see different points of these visions, a lot of times he will, it's almost like he can't really completely describe it, but he'll say something like, it's what looked like this. It kind of had the appearance of this. So he's doing the best he can, uh, even though it may not be exactly what, but he's trying to describe it in as best ways he knows how, so. So, uh, you know, this is, these are Ezekiel's perceptions. This is how he sees it, you know, and he's telling us what he saw. So he had these elements. Uh, the heavens are opening in this case. The heavens open up. He has this cloud. And again, you see this cloud in the Old Testament. You also see it in the New Testament. When Jesus ascends, uh, you see it in the book of Revelation. You see the cloud. You see all these things. So the cloud that you see in, as Jesus ascends tells us and tells the people at the time that he is the same as this cloud that was on Sinai. He is, this is God. This is God that you need to you know, see him that way. So that's important. And here we see the cloud again. And this cloud is flashes of fire coming out of lightning. Wind. wind, that's right. That's right, wind. Any other thoughts on that before we get into the next part? Anybody? I mean, I don't really have a lot to say on that other than it's pretty self-explanatory. This is what he sees. He sees these things, you know. Um, I think we've already talked about some of the symbolism of these things, the cloud and the, uh, and the fire. You know, fire refines and it, it burns, it consumes, it destroys. It, it, it's hearing too, though. It's hearing the wind. He hears the wind, that's right. When it starts howling, it's pretty That's right, yeah. Lightning, thunder, boom. Right. His senses are engaged. Yeah, engages his senses. That's right. It's pretty powerful stuff. All right, so the next part, um, let's see, verse 5 through 10. Uh, Would somebody read that? Verses 5 through 10. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness. 
but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Okay. All right, so... So this is what he sees. He sees the living creatures and they have four faces. Their wings are touching. Uh, says that they're, uh, just to kind of review that and kind of pull the visual elements out of it. Uh, you have, uh, they had human likenesses, but they had four faces, not just the human likeness. And each of them had four wings in this case. Their legs were straight. So they had straight legs. Uh, the soles of their feet looked like a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze so they were bright uh, if you've ever seen uh, bronze or brass burnished bronze and brass looks very similar when, it's, when you, you're looking at it like that it's sparkling it's, it's bright and shiny and it, it's very uh, dynamic you know you can see your reflection in it and so forth and uh, so then it tells as Walt read it tells um, shows a little bit more of their characteristics, but I really want to look at verse 10. It tells what their faces were. Uh, they had a human face, then they had a lion, then they had the face of an ox, and they had the face of an eagle. Now, this is important. This isn't just something we want to brush aside because this uh, really, there's a lot we can say about this. Uh, and so... There's a prominent interpretation that has taken place throughout church history with these things and that, that really uh, goes into our time even, you know, goes throughout the centuries, well up into the Reformation. And that's that uh, we, people have equated the four creatures, the four faces of the creatures with the four evangelists in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm probably not. I'm probably a lot of you probably already knew this, but we'll we'll kind of review this. So, throughout church history, the most common interpretation. Uh, well, this is one of the most common interpretations of seeing the gospels writers in this and and uh, relating the gospels to these symbols to these things. And it's not always. Uh, exactly the same not everybody does it exactly the same way so you know you don't want to get too caught up in this to the point where you become dogmatic about it because you have different people interpreting different ways some people for instance uh would see mark as the lion uh luke as the ox or the calf uh matthew as man and john as the eagle and uh, some people saw it that way. But then you've got other people, uh, like Irenaeus, he saw Matthew as the human, John as the lion, Luke as the ox, and Mark as the eagle. Is that what I just said? No, John was the eagle the first time. So Mark as the eagle. So it kind of varies uh, throughout, the, throughout these, these writers how they saw it, but it's fascinating. And, and this continued for centuries, this outlook on it of interpreting things that way. So much so that 
I mean, we're talking now, you know, we're talking all the way up to 1526, which is the Tyndale Bible. I'm going to pass this around. And I've got these pages marked. And you can see the, uh, the little uh, panes here where they, the little uh, pictures where they illuminate the gospel, the authors. There's an animal in each one. And it reflects, uh, or at least every one but the man. The man doesn't have an animal for obvious reasons. But the others have, uh, have a, an animal that corresponds to the author at the beginning. And also this, is a, this uh, manuscript here has a page. This was put together around 700 or 800. That was from 1526. So this one uh, has a page of the four animals as it starts the gospel section in the, in the manuscript. I'll pass that around to set that up. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I I read something like that, it was based on the, the creatures in Revelation, mm-hmm. and it was a third way. Mm-hmm. John was the eagle, you know, mm-hmm. for the divinity of Christ. Right. Uh, Matthew was the lion, mm-hmm. as, as the gospel of the king. This is in Revelation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it was based on, on the vision of these same creatures in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So nobody can agree on anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, the Revelation chapter four is where where Craig's talking about, and this is. Uh, I'll just read that section. I got it right here. So, verses verse six. This is John's vision of these things. It says and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures. So he sees the same thing. Uh, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth like an eagle in flight. So we can assume that he sees at least, he sees that face turn toward him, right? On these four living creatures. The same four faces. Yeah, exactly. But, but of course, Ezekiel says each has the four. But we can assume that, you know, he saw that side, you know, John, of them. And... Uh, and the four living creatures, each of them had, the, had six wings. John records six wings. Uh, Ezekiel records four. So, you know, maybe the two wings were hidden with the ones Ezekiel saw or something. I don't know. Uh, so every time you see six of something, there's always going to be four of something. Has what? Say that again. So every time you see six of something, there's always going to be four of something. Okay. Four, yeah. <laughs> it contains four. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> like if you see two... See two angels. Yeah. There's two angels. Always going to be well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure that you can say the reverse, though. But <laughs> that's true. So let me uh, let me read a little bit from the fathers here on this interpretation because I think I think it's this is interesting to us to uh, read about this because this is this is a kind of a a big deal throughout church history to see them this way. Irenaeus wrote uh, for. Since there are four zones in the world in which we live, north, south, east, and west, I think is what he's probably referring to, and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout all the world and the pillar and ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life, it is fitting that she should have four pillows, breathing out immortality on every side and vivifying men afresh. Uh, I'll read on down. As also David says when entreating his manifestation, 
you that sits between the cherubim shine forth. And for the cherubim too were forefaced, and their faces were images of the dispensation of the Son of God. As the scripture says, the first living creature was like a lion, symbolizing his effectual working, his leadership, and royal power. The second living creature was like a calf, signifying his sacrificial and sacerdotal order. The third had, as it were, the face of a man, an evident description of his advent as a human being. The fourth was like a flying eagle, pointing out the gift of the Spirit hovering with his wings over the church. Uh, And therefore the Gospels are in accord with these things, among which Jesus Christ is seated. And he says on, I'll read a little bit more. He says, for this reason is that gospel full of all confidence for such as his person, but that according to Luke, taking up his priestly character, commenced with Zacharias, the priest offering sacrifice to God. Um, For now was made ready the fatted calf. And then uh, Matthew relates again to his generation as a man. So... uh, Actually, the second one I read, I think, is from a different author. Sorry about that. But anyway, Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus starts, he, he starts to see, he shares with us the way he sees uh, what these things mean and how they relate to God and how this shows that um, the lion symbolizes leadership and royal power. And we see that, and so that's a valid symbol. Uh, the second is a calf, and a calf is sacrificial, right? Calf is something you, you sacrifice. And um, the third, the man, is evident of the fact that Christ was a man. He was, it was an advent of a human being. And the fourth was like an eagle pointing out the gift of the Spirit hovering with his wings over the church, as Irenaeus said. So that's the symbolism that he draws forth in these things and why he says it's appropriate. Uh, Augustine also took an approach like this, but he kind of took a little bit different approach. So he says it conveys the Christological portrait. It conveys the gospel beginnings. uh, Or Jerome says it it, uh, conveys the gospel beginnings. Augustine attempts to look at the whole of the gospel. So the gospel of Matthew then, according to Augustine, reflects the face of the lion because of the kingly character of Christ. The Gospel of Luke is the figure of the calf because of the preeminent sacrifice made by the priest. We talked about that. The Gospel of Mark is that of a man because the whole Gospel reflects the things that man the Christ did. There it is again. The Gospel of John is likened to an eagle because all three creatures walk on the ground, but the eagle soars above the clouds of human infirmity and gazes upon the light of the unchangeable truth with those keenest and steadiest eyes of the heart. So the eagle has eyes that can see things that no one else can see, that man can't see. Yeah, telescopic, that's right. So just like God can see into the heart of man, the very heart of people, knows our hearts, he uses the eagle to symbolize that, and that teaches us something. Now, I've talked about this before, but uh, I think this is good... This kind of thinking is, it's good to read this kind of thing because, and this is the reason I say that, because this is another example of seeing spiritual truth in creation elements, seeing spiritual things coming out that tell us about God, 
we see it in creation. In this case, in the case of four animals, four animals. So the eagle, we see the eagle and the, the, um, the church fathers see, they see uh, aspects of an eagle that tells them something about God himself. The fact that he can see into us, he can see all things. He's omnipresent. He sees all things at once. And he also soars over us. Uh, and, he, and the gospel and the Holy Spirit flies all over the earth. It's not static. It's not stuck in one place. It's always moving. Uh, the same with the, 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 uh, the calf. You know, the calf is, again, we're looking at an element of creation. The calf shows us there's a sacrifice, we see, and it shows us the priestly nature of God and so forth. So this is another example of that. And we see this happening throughout church history with this, with this example. So any, any thoughts on that by anybody? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Jesus, you know, continued this when he used uh, parables, uh, agrarian uh, things in his parables to teach spiritual things. You mm-hmm. know, he was just dealing with people where they lived. Right. So they could, you know, come closer to understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Paul in Romans 1 says that people that don't have access to the scriptures at all know enough about God through creation right? mm-hmm. there without excuse right right mm-hmm. yeah I mean even even the most remote tribe out there historically has seen realizes by looking at it, elements in nature that there's something more there you know yeah that there's something behind it there's there's an under yes so yeah so that's one level of encouragement from this it seems sort of sacredness of categories of creation. Yeah. There's another layer of encouragement that we get from this. Um, Irenaeus and Augustine lived during the time when the New Testament canon was being born. Right? So what we can glean from that is that this interpretation of Ezekiel really shaped the New Testament canon. Yeah. The reason why we have four Gospels is because of his vision. Mm, mm-hmm. It's not the other way around. Yeah. They didn't go back and say, well, there's four Gospels, so mm-hmm. you know, they didn't go back and right. connect to the vision. Mm-hmm. It was the vision that helped to form mm-hmm. the New Testament in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Because there were other stories going around. Mm-hmm. Some of them were obviously heretical. Right. Some of them were obviously divinely inspired. And there were a lot in the middle. Sure. And it, it mattered to them that there had to be four. Mm-hmm. No more, no less. That, right, that, right. That, So we could say that God used this as a way to, as a way to uh, put boundaries on those that built the canon in a sense that they needed to have four gospels. At the very least, we could say it's not arbitrary. Right. Right. People that are saying, well, you know, why, you know, why, why did they pick this one instead of this one? Well, they did have a reason. Right. And it's encouraging to, I think, to see that. Sure. Yeah. they thought very carefully about this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good very point. Good. Mm-hmm. It's also for me it's remarkable that you know, he, he's grappling with it through the five senses. Mm-hmm. You know, very sensitive. Sure. What you see, what you hear. I don't mean to know about smelling, but in other places mm-hmm. we have people talking about smells from heaven. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so, so it's, 
is how God engages us. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, he, he's such, he's so real. Right. Such a, such a, he's such a reality. Sure. That his way of connecting with us is through what he has created in us. Right. Five senses. Yeah, yeah. And it's always when you're, when, when you are very sensitive to those things, mm-hmm. five senses, what you see, hear, taste, touch, whatever, when you, when you become very sensitive to those things, Right. It begins to open up another dimension of reality that is a spiritual dimension. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is, it is one way right. to move into the spiritual reality. Yeah. And, yeah. And, That's... and God engages in that way to bring us to that place. Right, so, right. So it's like if you, you know, if you pay real close attention to maybe something that God is visualizing mm-hmm. in your head and you really try to zoom in on it fix on it, it, it sort of takes you to another place. Right, and, right. Uh, that's great, yeah. And, and so that's exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's, but it's huge. It's yeah. Way beyond sure. like one or two days in your life. Right. And they're talking about all of history, basically. Yeah, so, yeah, so, exactly. So. Yeah, and, and even even in the other visions we talked about, like the one with the uh, Israelites, or the, the elders, the 70 elders and Moses and and uh, Aaron and them that went up and they saw God there and they saw a vision of him and we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, they they had, it's it's even written that their sense of taste was because they, they ate. Yeah, they ate, they smelled and, and it was a dinner that God had for them. And so, um, so yeah, you definitely see that in, in these cases. So. To me it's amazing because it, you know, it's, it's like it's like us being observant mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. nature, to things around us, to people, right. to faces, to, to looks on people's yeah. faces, to tone of voice. Mm-hmm. The more that we can be observant of that, the, the deeper it leads us into intimacy with with that situation and yeah. more intimacy with, with God. Right, right. So, yeah. And it's, and it, it's, it should be part of our quest. Mm-hmm. We're pursuing, you know, being children of, of, of the Most High. Yeah, you know, yeah. On our journey, on our quest, part of it is to be, is to learn to be observant with right. everything, because God is, God is ever present. Mm-hmm. You know, so you look at a tree. I remember when I first became a Christian. So I, remember, I remember walking out in one place and looking, and it was like the world was a completely different place. Right. The trees look different. The clouds look. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was just different. Sure. And, uh, and then it was like, Whoa. Amen. It, every the whole all of creation became about God. Yeah, we that's got right. Daily, mm-hmm. where each day is a new day. Yeah. And we can start all over again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good stuff. Uh, let me also, if I can find it here, uh, read you Jerome's. Uh, make sure I don't get out of order here. I'm going to staple this together. Jerome, uh, Jerome's take on this. So, Jerome says the Gospel of Matthew reflects the face of a human. Because now, all right, let me before I read this, let me let me say that Jerome looks at the beginning of the Gospels and set, and sees these um, these apply in this way. You'll see what I mean. The Gospel of Matthew reflects the face of a human because the opening genealogy, face of a human, right? The Gospel of Mark reflects the lion because of a lion roaring in the wilderness, being John the Baptist. So, and, and indeed, 
uh, he is sometimes called the lion. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, well, he's he's the lion in the in the wilderness. Is John John the Baptist? The Gospel of Luke is the face of a calf because the opening with Zechariah the priest in Luke. So you see the the priest priest and the calf. You see the connection there. And the Gospel of John signifies the eagle because he is hastening toward higher matters discussing the Word of God. You know, it starts off with this really high Christology, high theology. So this is symbolic thinking, folks. This is, this is uh, when you look at Scripture and you see symbol in it. And I think this, hap- this can happen more and more, you know. And sometimes we, sometimes we can struggle to find uh, application in symbol, but it is there. It is there. Yes? Yeah, and yeah. Could the eagles represent the church in some of this interpretation? Any of the church fathers? I, I don't remember that specifically, but I don't see why that would be a bad interpretation. You know, uh, I think, you know, but I don't remember. They may have, you know, I didn't get to look through them all, but, uh, you know. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's that's great. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because I taught a class on symbolism in film. Basically, lots mm-hmm. of films about symbols, and one of the rules that you have to go by is that anything that you see, you have to justify it with the source. Okay. So, in other words, if I see this door on a house as being a symbol, <clears throat> I have to be able to justify it within the context of the film. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so you always have that. You always have mm-hmm. that initial foundational thing that's mm-hmm. significant and everything has to be tied back into it. Makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. the same way. Sure. So that's why which vision is right. Mm-hmm. All of them. Right. So exactly. Exactly. Because they go back to the source and justify it right. the source. You know? Yeah. And, and we shouldn't be, it shouldn't bother us that different people interpret this different ways because, I mean, even within Scripture, the order of the Faces the order of animals is different between Ezekiel and Revelation. That's right. So you know it's okay that there's more than one way of seeing that. It's saying I think it's telling us that there's something in there that we can receive and accept. Yeah. And help it will help us and help us move on. We don't have to become so dogmatic that oh this is the way you go. Know. And that's right. what happens with all these guys that are you know, end time prophets. Yeah. You know, they'll take some yeah. phrase or something. And yeah. They cue it and all, man, that's exactly what it means. Exactly, so, right, on, right. In, in 1884, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, so, yeah. When they get to 1885, they're going, eh, you know, really, he came back and yeah. moved over to heaven. To <laughs> they shift their time, yeah. <laughs> I listen to a radio program every day after church. I call it my prophecy nut fix. So, <laughs> uh, it's, it's all this end time stuff, you know, and they just go on. I mean, you've heard it a thousand times, yeah. but. I like to get a fix on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually millennial dispensationalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's usually what they're... Yeah. There's truth there. I think it's trying to tell us you don't yeah. take some specific right. truth and let that become so dogmatic. But it becomes your whole body. Yeah. 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 Everything revolves around yeah. that. Right. You know, right. But that's what they do. One of the Larry I don't hear much 
John, the prophecy teachers is, he will come as a thief in the night. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, you don't hear that. That's right. <laughs> right. Well, see, that's why it's interesting for me in class. Right? I have my own interpretation of films and saw the certain symbols and whatever. It might mm-hmm. be. But somebody writes on the thing and they see something completely different. Yeah. And I'm going. Whoa! I never saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I never, yeah, so then, the next time I teach, I have more stuff. To sure, you add it. Yeah, that's and great. I take full credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's look at um, let's read on here in Ezekiel. Let's see, Walt. I think you read through verse ten. Somebody else read eleven. Um, go ahead and read eleven through fourteen. Thus were their faces. Wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not return when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Okay. So, um, you know, there's some really, you start getting into this stuff and there's some really bizarre uh, teaching out there, you know, that starts, oh, this refers to uh, the UFO people, Walton. It's Walt, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, uh, refers to uh, the speed of light, you know, start... Um, yeah, yeah, ancient aliens. Uh, you know, obviously that, that's we're not going to go there, but uh, that's not where what we believe. But uh, these these are uh, the beings before the throne of God, and this is this is Ezekiel's uh, what Ezekiel sees happening here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think he was a real artist. And his visions were bizarre. Yeah. He suffered through them. Yeah, yeah. He was creative. He was, I mean, yeah, so, so mm-hmm. I mean, his personality lends itself. Right, to this. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So this describes the living creatures. Uh, I think it's interesting that they're, they're, it talks about their wings covering, used for covering of themselves. In some way, and we see that in Isaiah too. Remember that talked about that. Uh, their wings are touching with the other between more than one creature. We see that Connor brought out a week or two ago about the wings touching on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the way they built the Ark. So I think you see. I'm pointing this out to show you the consistency in Scripture here on these things. Um, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and in literature, part of this has been uh, in literature and culture. Part of the uh, way that culture visualizes angels like a, a man with wings uh, is influenced greatly by Greek mythology and so forth, culture. Because if they describe, if they, if you saw in a, 
in a film or something an angel that actually looked like the angels, as it's been pointed out before, it would be terrifying. It wouldn't it wouldn't look like that at all, you know. That's what I always thought this <laughs> the, real, the terrifying thing. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, though, Mary mistook an angel for a gardener. Yeah. So, well, clearly, at times, they can look like, yeah. Probably not foresighted. Right, right, right. probably didn't have wings. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, God allows them to be seen as, as men sometimes. But Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't want to get too much into categories and so forth of angels and all that but but you know you, you're right you see all that in scripture you see you see this messengers angel means messenger you see that described in different ways and you know maybe maybe some of the heavenly beings maybe they aren't used as messengers maybe god just has heavenly beings around his throne worshiping him you know and that's that's the that's what they do you know well, there, we don't does, know you know it does seem like that there are levels yeah Yeah, I don't remember the number. Yeah, I'm not sure we had a number. There's yeah. four cherubim. Right, right. Um, and there's four in Revelation. So there may only be four, but there is a heavenly yeah. host. Right. So there's yeah. like a multitude of angels of some sort. Yeah, you know, and yeah. And knows you know, what the different divisions are. Exactly. Are I can't remember the names of all the games. <laughs> yeah. There's like four of those. Michael. Michael. Yeah. Four. Archangels. Archangels. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we obviously we're not going to know the the heavenly order till we get there, you know. So we anything anything we do other than what Scripture reveals to us will be speculative. But anything that we that we think. But uh, let's read on uh, in the last few minutes. I do want to cover one other thing, or at least start to get into it. Um, and that is, there's something here that what one of the things that Ezekiel's vision is most famous for is the wheel. The wheel within a wheel. So verse 15 through um, 21. Would someone read that? As I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth of the living creatures was four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of the barrel, and they four had one likeness. And their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of the wheel. And when they went, they went up, four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their wings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their hmm. wings were full of eyes round about and four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Mm-hmm. Through 21. Uh, yes, please. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. All right. Pretty bizarre stuff, isn't it? When, we, when we're hearing about it. Explain this. <laughs> so... Uh, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go you know talk about this the only way I know how, and you know I did kind of read the way some other authors kind of read this and what they glean from it. Uh, you know, there's only so much we can do with it, but I think 
I think we can take these things and we can think about, well, you know, things aren't described in Scripture a certain way by accident. And so I think it's okay to think, all right, well, what, what's the point of a wheel to begin with? What does a wheel do? It goes somewhere. Yeah. It's, it, it, it allows motion. It allows easier movement than would be if you don't have a wheel. They say that, I think I've read this, that the, uh, the cultures that were in North and South America either did, never discovered a wheel or they, they didn't use it nearly as much as the cultures on the other side of the world. And this affected their technological advancement greatly. Because, you know, when Cortez came... He conquered them without hardly any effort whatsoever. So the Incas or Mayans or whatever they were, I don't know my that history very well, but, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, the wheel was an important part of human civilization and because it allowed movement. It allowed motion over large distances. So this, at the very least, we should be able to see this and think, okay, this speaks to us about about the movement of God, the fact that he's dynamic and he's not static. He's, you know, this is not a, this is not a throne. These wheels under the throne show that the throne and the rule of God is not something that's, that is stuck. Yeah. It's not stuck in one place. It's dynamic. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. Amen. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's right. So it's a ring. Yeah. It's infinite, yeah. It goes on, right. Yeah, that's right. So Ezekiel's wheel and the vision uh, was on the ground beside each of the four creatures, and there were four wheels that sparkled like topaz, and they would travel whichever way the four creatures faced. Uh, and these rims are described as high and awesome, as uh, uh, Jim read, with eyes all around them. Um, so... The Spirit of God gave direction to the wheels through knowledge of and access to the will of God. It, it, obviously, the wheels have access to the will of God here. God controls the wheels. The wheels go where God wants them to go. The mobility suggests the omnipresence of God. The eyes, His omniscience. And the elevated position, His omnipotence. All right? You mean to repeat that? So... The mobility of those wheels suggests the omnipresence, that he's everywhere. The eyes in the wheels suggest his omniscience, he sees everything. And the elevated position, his, omni, his omnipotence. So he's, you know. Um, so when we ponder a wheel, or when I ponder a wheel, I think of, you know, how the wheel moves a vehicle forward. It enables the journey. It enables the journey. So uh, this. This shows, again, the fact that, that the power and the rule of God and his, the things that he does, his power throughout the creation, throughout all things, throughout reality, is dynamic. It's not static. It doesn't stay in one place. And he, he is controlling all things. Could you not see this also as a real symbol of the church itself? You could, I guess, as yeah. As far as being a will. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Spirit in the wheels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. You could do it all there. Those little toy 
toys you get at the uh, like space camp, whatever. It's got a wheel and you spin it, and it wouldn't go. It would stay balanced even though the wheel was situated kind of like that. Oh yeah. And it's, yeah. A, it's not enough for there to be motion. It's got to be balanced and controlled. Hmm. And since you know God always shows Himself in nature, like you can have an unbalanced wheel and you'll break your car. There's got to be true. physical order and balance to it. Right. It's like you can have you can have motion in a church, but if it's not balanced, mm-hmm. it's going to either fall apart or it's not going to accomplish where they want it to go. That's true. Yeah. But that was my thought with the four wheels: is the idea of stability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And coincidentally, it's the same design as an atom. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the Jews call this the chariot vision because they see the uh, they say this as a as a if you if you take the wheels under here and you have above that you have the throne, the seat, and the driver is God, the chariot. You see that as a chariot. You know, it's that's the way they they interpret it. So you know, um, it's kind of a the idea of the power movement of a chariot. You know, and uh, Four-wheeled chariot would be even more stable than a two-wheeled chariot, you know. So I don't know, something to think about. Did you have, did you come across anything in your reading about this that talked about astronomy? Not really. What what are you what are you thinking? Well, I mean, there's this insistence in the Bible that angels and the stars are kind of the same thing. Oh yeah, and yeah, you, you see that. They are wheels within wheels. That's how it works. True. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I I didn't really think about that. And then yeah. it, there's also you know the, I mean, we don't really talk about this today, but there there is this sort of idea that what goes on up there dictates what happens down here. Mm-hmm. So there's you know God's sovereignty over right. Right. By, it's all interconnected. Do the Psalms even call it a chariot? The movement of the sun. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the the story of Apollo was that he was the sun riding riding his chariot across the sky. But mm-hmm. that's in one of the Psalms also. Yeah. Well, well but, but that was that was a common thought. Yeah. Uh, in the ancient world. It's human culture, yeah, even. Yeah, okay. Well, this is great. And this is hard stuff, y'all. Uh, I'm going to stop there, but I'll just say a few words here. Uh, this is hard stuff, but you know, the we can glean spiritual truth from these things, and I think that's I think at the end of the day, the best way to approach things like this is to see what it can teach us about God. See what it can teach us about about Him and what He does and how He interacts with us. And and uh, and to worship God by being in awe of these things. And uh, to note the consistency throughout Scripture as well in these things. So um, if we can be encouraged that God is on the move, the Spirit is on the move, and moves throughout the earth and always does, then that's a good thing. And this can encourage us as believers in that way. If we can be encouraged that God is always worshipped day and night, all the time, uh, then that can encourage us. That He's always on the throne day and night. That He's always in control of all things. We're to be encouraged with that. So, all right. That's all I have.